Uh, well, welcome to the Ex-Religious Support Network. Our aim here is to provide a safe space for people who have left or are thinking of leaving their religion. To find us on Meetup, simply search for Ex-Religious Support Network. On Facebook, search for Ex-Religious Discussion Group. My name is Les Allen and I'm the group facilitator. This is the fourth session in a series of sessions exploring various aspects of religious trauma presented by professional counsellor Caroline Winsenreed. Caroline started this series with an overview with the hidden toll of religious trauma. Her, ne her next two sessions were on the persistence of purity culture and the nature of identity and relationships. In today's session, Caroline will explore the concept of sin as it is ever present in many faiths. The emphasis placed on sin and the dire nature of its consequences can plant a pervasive, nagging or overwhelming fear that often follows people long after leaving a religion. Teachings around sin can also cause people to develop a deep-seated sense of shame around the idea that they are inherently wrong or bad. She will discuss the traumatic shame and anxiety that can take root from a focus on sin. So a little about Caroline Winsenreed. Uh, she's a counsellor working from Baronia here in Victoria, Australia. Caroline works from an existential humanistic lens with individuals across the lifespan, from adolescent to older adults on issues including anxiety, depression and interpersonal relationships. Her areas of special interest include working with religious trauma and grief and loss. So please welcome Caroline. Thanks Liz for that introduction and thanks so much everyone for having me here tonight. It's such a pleasure to be here and it's great to have the opportunity to share a little bit about the subject that I'm really passionate about. And as Liz said tonight, we'll be exploring a little bit about the concept of sin and punishment and how important those are in several world religions. I'll just take a moment here to bring up my slides. Okay. So as Les said, my name is Caroline Winsnade, and I'm a counselor with a special interest in religious trauma based in Bronia. Some of you might recognize me from some presentations I've given before on religious trauma and the various ways that it can manifest. But today I'd like to really zoom in on how some ideas about this role of sin and punishment in religion can leave a pretty lasting emotional and cognitive impact. And we're gonna do a little bit of jumping around tonight. So I just wanna give you a look into where this presentation will go. We're going to start with some important background information, differentiating the concepts of sin and punishment in three different world religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. Next, we'll take a look at how the centrality of sin and punishment and all that that entails can lead to a pervasive fear of both of these concepts in both people with diagnosable mental health disorders and in the general population. So just a quick note on terms today. I'll be using the word sin as a catch-all term going forward, particularly in the later sessions, sections of this presentation, but I think it's important to note that many world religions don't actually use this term. They have several different words for this concept and many differentiate with how severe they see them or whether it was intentional or not. 
I'd also just like to warn you that I'm likely to embarrass myself mispronouncing some of these words, but I'll do my best. I've tried to capture a snapshot of the beliefs that may differ across each of these religions, but it's quite complex and even within religions, there are, are many different perspectives. So if you feel that I've mischaracterized anything, or if you just want to correct my pronunciation, I welcome you to bring that up at the end of this presentation. So I'd like to start by taking a look at sin across the different Abrahamic religions. I'm sure many of you here are all too familiar with some of the ideas your previous religion may have had about sin and punishment. In many religions, these teachings tend to be front and center. But I'd like to just start us off here with a brief overview of how these three different religions conceptualize sin so that we can get a sense of some of the nuances of these themes and how they might differ between these religions. So as you can see here, all three of these religions have different categories of severity when classifying sins. Catholicism, for example, classifies sin by whether it's a mortal or a minor sin. And they refer to these as mortal or venial. Islam similarly categorizes sins by how severe they're seen. And this is where my pronunciation might get a little wacky. They have their major or al-kabayr versus minor al-sagayr. Major sins in Islam are any sins which are mentioned explicitly in the Quran or Hadith and are prescribed a specific legal penalty or punishment. I'll give a few examples of these major sins on the next slide. There is no outline of or definition necessarily for minor sins, although examples given by Muslim leaders to illustrate the concepts often include showing relatively harmless immodesty or disregard for another person. These minor sins do not require repentance and do not cause the person who committed them to face punishment in the afterlife. However, if someone repeatedly commits them and shows that they don't have any remorse, they may become major sins. As with Islam, there are several different words for the concept of sin in Judaism. Judaism differentiates between sins done purely out of rebelliousness, or pisha, sins done intentionally and out of a moral failing, a bone, and sins committed out of ignorance or simple negligence, a hit, I believe. In Judaism, it is a sin to violate any of the 613 commandments. These commandments are both positive, meaning they're instructions that you should perform an act, and negative, meaning instructions to avoid an act. I'll have a few examples on the next slide for us to explore that. I'd also like to point out that Christianity is unique among these three religions in that it places a particularly strong emphasis on your thoughts and has very few rituals or behaviors which are expected of its followers. In contrast, Islam and Judaism place little emphasis on thoughts and place a very strong emphasis on performing specific rituals and behaviors, which are outlined in their religious texts. Repentance also looks quite different across these three religions. The act of confession has a place in all three, but only in Christian religions, particularly in Catholicism, are sins confessed to another person as part of atonement. Notably, Major sins must be confessed to a priest or other high-standing member of the clergy 
in order to be forgiven in Catholicism. In Judaism and Islam, sins are confessed directly to God. If a person has been wronged by the sin, Jews and Muslims are also expected to make amends directly to that person and to perform good deeds to atone. In the next few slides, I'll outline some examples of major sins in these three religions. So here are some examples of some major sins in Islam. The biggest sin in Islam is polytheism, or the belief in multiple gods. As you can see from this list, the focus on these sins is behavioral, and it's focused on rituals as well. I've listed here some examples from the commandments in Judaism. Again, notice the focus on behavior and rituals. On this slide are some examples of Christian sins. Most of these are behavioral, but you may notice that envy is an outlier here as a thought sin. I'd also like to point out that while several of these seem to just be behavioral, they are actually classified as sins even if you don't act them out. So if you just have adulterous thoughts, that is considered basically the same as committing adultery. Another area that differentiates these three religions is their concepts of human nature. Many branches of Christianity, including Catholicism, Presbyterianism, and Reformed branches, subscribe to the idea of original sin. Original sin is the idea that all humans have inherited a sort of generational sin from Adam after his fall from Eden when he ate the apple. Not only do these Christian teachings suggest that humans are naturally inclined to sin, but also that they have inherited a tainted nature and are sinful from their very birth. In contrast, Islam and Judaism do not subscribe to the idea of original sin. While they believe that humans have a tendency to stray from the path, they do not believe that humankind is inherently tainted or sinful. Next, I'll paint a quick picture of the consequences of sin in each religion through their ideas of punishment in the afterlife. So the Christian concept of hell has evolved quite a lot over the years, and it has become a bit of a cultural icon, if you will. I'd like to throw in there that all of these three Abrahamic religions, ideas of a hell-like place, including Gehenna in Judaism and Jahannam in Islam, came from or may have been directly referring to an actual valley that existed outside of Jerusalem. And this valley used to be sort of a trash heap and it was not a very nice place. In fact, in its history, there are some fiery child sacrifices. So this really conjured up some images of this terrible place for people who were alive at the time. Some of our modern images of hell, actually a lot of them, come from Dante's Inferno and were introduced much later in Christianity's history. As you can see here in this painting that was based on Dante's Inferno, these images are intended to be quite frightening and evocative. Islam has a very similar concept of hell called Jahannam to modern day Christianity. Jahannam is often described as a fiery, terrifying abyss where sinners are sent. But there's a major difference between hell and Jahannam, which is that Jahannam is not eternal. Sinners spend a set amount of time here, 
toning before they may reach jhana or paradise. The concept of hell is kind of a tricky one in Judaism because there are some very different ideas, even within the religion, about the afterlife. Traditionally, the Torah mentions a place called Shoal, which is this sort of ill-defined place beneath the earth where all the dead go. There's no judgment in Shoal. Everyone goes there regardless of how they lived. But in later years of Judaism's history, other ideas of the afterlife emerged, which included sort of a heaven and a hell-like place. This hell-like place was called Gehonim. And for some, this may be a temporary passage on the way to the Garden of Eden or their version of heaven. For others, it may be their final place of rest, if you can call it that. So these concepts of sin and punishment are hugely important in religion. They often reinforce these moral codes that are set about in these sacred texts and inspire a fear in people that keeps them very preoccupied with these potential punishments and doing everything that they can not to commit sin or stray from these paths and face this eternal punishment. So it's very natural that this leads to a pretty pervasive fear in both people who have been diagnosed with a mental health disorder related to anxiety around this or other things, but also in the general population. I'm going to start by talking about how this manifests in a particular category of obsessive compulsive disorder. And then I will discuss how it manifests even in the general population. Scrupulosity is a subcategory of obsessive compulsive disorder. You might be familiar with OCD, but to give a quick summary, it's a disorder characterized by frequent intrusive thoughts which produce extreme anxiety. And everyone experiences intrusive thoughts sometimes, but people with OCD attribute a much greater importance to them. These intrusive thoughts are often accompanied by compulsive behavior to make sure that the thought does not become a reality. With scrupulosity, these intrusive thoughts take on a religious theme. Someone struggling with this may have frequent and distressing thoughts about committing a sin. For example, having sex with someone outside of marriage, or worshiping another god, or not correctly performing an important ritual. Intrusive thoughts may also take the form of intrusive mental images of a sacrilegious nature. Religious compulsions, such as excessive praying, confession, seeking reassurance from religious leaders, and ritualistic cleansing may accompany these obsessions. Research suggests that scrupulosity takes quite different forms depending on a person's religious background. Christians are more likely to be preoccupied with intrusive sinful thoughts, whereas Muslims and Jews are more likely to be preoccupied with fears of not having fulfilled religious rituals and customs in a correct way. In ritualistic religions, such as Islam and Judaism, the compulsive element for example, checking and repeating rituals to make sure that they've done it correctly, may be more salient than the obsessional element. Whereas in Christianity, this obsessional element of fearing that one has sinned by having sinful thoughts tends to be very salient. Scrupulosity has been found to affect people in many countries and religions, but particularly the three Abrahamic religions of Christianity, 
Judaism, and Islam. It affects somewhere between a quarter to a third of all people with an OCD diagnosis. A 2017 study by McIngville and others found that participants with scrupulosity reported higher levels of overall OCD symptomatology and higher levels of overall disability, including work and social disability, than participants with other forms of OCD. Typical treatments for OCD involve some form of cognitive behavioral therapy to help clients decatastrophize by confronting and testing out their fears. This can pose several challenges when treating clients with scrupulosity, because in many cases, these fears cannot be tested. A Muslim man who is asked not to engage with his compulsion of cleansing himself over and over again to make sure that he gets it right, won't actually be able to test if that will result in him being damned for an eternity. How can he know? Some clinicians aim to bypass this by directly challenging a client's beliefs about hell and damnation. However, this is often received as an affront to the client's core religious beliefs, and many religious clients who are challenged in this way drop out of therapy before continuing the treatment and starting to feel better. Scrupulosity in Christianity poses another unique challenge because of its culturally normative thought-action fusion. Thought-action fusion is a set of two beliefs which together are thought to cause and perpetuate OCD. The first one is that having a thought is equal to carrying it out in reality. The second one is that having a thought increases the chance of it happening in reality. A challenge with Christianity is that this thought-action fusion is actually built into many Christian teachings, which state explicitly that certain thoughts are sinful. Many trace this understanding back to Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, where he said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Because this thought-action fusion is such an integral part of many Christian teachings, it can be really difficult to challenge this in therapy. As I mentioned before, a preoccupation with sin and following rituals isn't unique to those who suffer from OCD. If you join me for a presentation on purity culture that I gave before, you may remember some of the ways that this can manifest in sexuality and intimacy. Many people, both religious and those who have left religion, struggle with thoughts around sexuality and the idea that these thoughts make them sinful. This is particularly salient in LGBT populations. A participant in Kibma's 2018 study describes his experience as a gay Christian man this way. We are limited to a very specific idea, a sin narrative, a struggle narrative. He explains that as someone who is thought to be living in sin all the time as a gay man, he must adopt this narrative of a constant holy struggle against his innate sin in order to be accepted by his religious community. And this also extends to behaviors and rituals that one may have been a part of when they were still a part of their religion. Even after leaving a religion, this preoccupation doesn't fade so easily. 
an illustration of this is a quote by a formerly Jewish participant in David Mint and Greel's 2007 study who describes her experiences. When I made a telephone call on a Jewish holiday, I felt as though I was tearing apart one of my vital organs. I felt as though I was foolishly opening the door to hell and sending myself into a wilderness where hope for survival was grim. So you may be wondering, why do some people without OCD experience this too? And the reason for this is that sin and punishment are really central themes of a moral identity in religion. The research shows us that central aspects of identity, such as morality, can be very difficult and rigid to change. Even after someone leaves a religion and no longer cognitively believes in their old religious beliefs, early formative experiences and schemas can cement parts of these identities, particularly the moral parts. One pillar of this moral identity is early formative experiences, such as credibility enhancing displays. In the case of a formerly religious person, seeing a parent regularly perform religious behaviors that require significant monetary, behavioral, or time sacrifices. For example, adopting a strict diet, attending church, or making time at several hours of the day for regular ritualistic prayer. Seeing trusted adults repeatedly go through these actions and perform these high cost behaviors can reinforce the child's concept of religion as a central moral theme. And this often results in internalizing the religion as a core part of the child's identity. And I'd like to add too that when we talk about morality here, there are several overlaps between Christian, Judeo-Christian ideas of morality and secular ideas. But what's important here is also the rationale for those ideas. For example, a secular person and a religious person might find it important to show compassion and to be kind to other people. But the reasons for that might be very different. And it's those reasons that can also stick around. So the other pillar of this moral identity is schemas. Schemas are cognitive frameworks which help us to organize and make sense of information. Identity schemas can be deeply embedded in the psyche and often become resistant to change over time. This is because people often shape their understanding of themselves and of the outside world around their schemas. If they encounter information which isn't consistent with their deeply entrenched schema, they are likely to try to outright reject the new information or to mold it to somehow fit inside of their existing schema. Sounds a little technical, so I'd like to give an example here of a child learning from her parents what dogs are. Her parents' trusted figures may teach her about several different breeds of dogs. She comes to understand that not all dogs look like her family dog, Lucky, who is a Labrador, but they do share certain features, such as being hairy, smaller than humans, and having four legs. And while she initially modifies her schema as she's growing up and learning from her parents to include corgis, spaniels, and poodles, this schema will over time solidify and become less accommodating of information which doesn't seem to fit. If a stranger tries to tell her that there is a three-legged dog on the street, 
and points to it and says, that's a dog, she may either reject this new information, having learned that a dog has four legs, or she may distort the information to make it fit her schema. For example, by telling herself that it's a mutant dog. Because many tenets of a religious schema, for example, God's existence are untestable, Tongren and others suggest that religious individuals may be less likely to modify these schemas. Furthermore, these religious schemas may remain intact even after a person leaves a religion. Aaron Beck, the creator of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, has suggested that schemas can cause psychological residue, which can be resistant to change. An example of this can be seen in clients who recover from depression and would no longer be diagnosed as depressed, yet still display signs of depressive thinking, acting, and feeling. Whereas compared to clients who have never been diagnosed with depression, they wouldn't be showing those things. Some people who leave a religion experience this phenomenon of psychological residue. In their 2019 study, Lee and Gooby explained that although some participants no longer believe in religious teachings logically, they were still affected on an emotional level by the beliefs that they held for so long. Some doctrines can be seen as conditions of worth, which needs to be worked through once the belief has gone on a rational level. Nevertheless, even when this psychological residue remains, leaving a religion has been demonstrated in the research to noticeably improve outcomes for many people. In Nisa's 2020 study, a participant describes her experience of leaving. You're taught that you are a sinner and that's why you become a Christian is because you need God to save you from your sins. As an atheist, I don't believe in the concept of sin anymore. So I don't have anything constantly pressing on me saying, you're a sinner, you're doing bad things, you need help. So emotionally, leaving was very positive for me. Talking about this psychological residue can be really challenging. Many people feel embarrassed that they still hold on to some of these ideas so strongly emotionally, even after rejecting them logically. Some people reach out for support to their partners or friends or loved ones, only to be asked, why can't you just get over this? You know this is ridiculous. And what I really want to emphasize here is that these lingering emotional responses are actually very normal. And while each person's experiences are unique to them, I'd encourage you to reach out and speak to others who have been through similar circumstances, to have that opportunity to see that you're not alone in struggling with this. Support groups play a really important role in this. One thing that research shows is that it makes such a huge difference to have people you can talk to who have been there. It's also a great place to share your story with others and telling your story can help you to make sense of those experiences and create a personal narrative that feels authentic to you. It can also help others who are going through something similar to see what you've gone through, that you've come out on the other side and to know that they can do it too. If you're struggling to disentangle yourself from this psychological residue, you may also find that it might be helpful to devote some time exploring this with the support of a counselor. Reconstructing an identity and releasing yourself from the hold of these emotional schemas are pretty big tasks, and it can make a big difference to be supported in that journey. And on these last two slides, I've listed the studies that I referenced during this presentation. 
There's been a lot of interesting research on this. Uh, a lot of it has been focused on scrupulosity in particular, which I'm really pleased about because I think this is a really important area. I'd also like to see a little bit more about some of the preoccupation with sin and the fear around sin and the anxiety that that causes in non-OCD populations as well. Because I think as we've discussed today, this isn't just unique to clinical populations. And that's all for me. So thank you so much, everyone, for having me here. Thank you, Caroline. Now, I want to say that you can access the videos and podcasts of previous sessions by visiting the resources section of the Rational Realm website at www.rationalrealm.com. And from there, you can also download Caroline's presentation slides.